We're continuing our series um, at the 2.30 Impact Service on I Disciple. Why don't we just try saying that out loud? Because I want it to become a prophetic statement over your life. I Disciple. What we're trying to invite you to is this ongoing conversation that we have and will always have as part of Kensington Temple. And that is how can we become the best disciples that we can truly be in relationship to God? Amen. Anybody up for that? But also, we want to be the best disciple makers. It's not enough that we have a wonderful relationship with Jesus. In fact, it would be quite selfish of us to keep that to ourselves. We want to invite other people to the party. We want to invite other people into the story of God. Other people to connect with who Christ is for them. And God awakening all of the dreams and aspirations and hopes that he's placed in their lives. So I disciple is an invitation prophetically for you to move towards that. Not just to disciple yourself, but a disciple who makes disciples. And uh, our conversation today will be around the subject of why we do what we do. What is the cause of discipleship? Some other terminology around that could be simply something like this. What is the goal of discipleship? What are we trying to achieve when we are discipling other people? Well, the Apostle Paul has a lot to say about that. And if you have a Bible with you this afternoon, perhaps you could turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 29. That's Romans, chapter 8, verse 29. Now, Paul was a profound disciple maker, and everywhere he went, he left behind in groups of well, hundreds sometimes, and sometimes far more than that, people who have truly given their hearts fully to the Lord Jesus Christ and continue to reach out to others to encourage them to do likewise and to come into this great and glorious adventure of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn from among many brothers and sisters. And that particular version comes from the NIV version of the Bible, which if in case you're wondering, I always read from, it's because it's the one I'm most familiar with. But let's take it a little bit deeper and look at something that says the same thing, but with some slightly different words. It comes from the message, same passage, same uh, reference. But this is what the message has to say to us about the goal of discipleship. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. Can somebody say amen to that? He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. I love that thought. That the whole purpose and goal of discipleship is that we become more and more and more like Jesus. Isn't that good news? But can I just say that is not some form of personal piety. In other words, that all of the sin that sometimes has invaded your soul is gotten rid of. There's so much more to becoming more like Jesus than just avoiding sin or being free from sin. We need to come under the incredible invitation that Jesus provides for us of being filled with the Spirit's power to impact the world around us with the good news of Jesus Christ. And there lies two camps, two trains of thought that people have around the subject of discipleship. One train is that we get hell out of us. Now, I know many of us in this room could be delighted today if we realize that that is exactly what God was doing. And can I say that that is what God is doing. God wants to get everything out of your life that hinders your life from growing fully into all that God wants you to be. Jesus came to set captives free. Do we have any captives in the room? Not anymore. 
Well, the truth is we are a work in progress. There are areas of our lives where God has done a great thing and set us free, but there are also areas of our lives where God is continuing to work in us to bring greater levels of freedom. Amen? So we are changing. Turn to the person on your left-hand side and say, I think he's referring to you. Now turn to the person on your right-hand side and say, I know he's talking about you. You are changing. So we are a work in progress. God wants to get certain things out of our lives that were never meant to be there, that have hindered us and restricted us and distorted our lives. But he also has a greater goal than that, not just to remove sin from us, but he wants to bring his fullness to us. In John 10.10, Jesus encapsulates what it means for us to live in the fullness of discipleship. He said, the thief has come to steal and destroy, but I came that you may have life and life in all its fullness. Now contemplate with me, if you would, the kind of life that Jesus lived. It would appear to me that Jesus had this glorious ability to live above his circumstances. Anybody like that upgrade this afternoon? Jesus had this glorious relationship with the Father to the point that it mattered not to him what people said or did around him. Would anybody like that kind of reality? Here's another one. This is an invitation for you to think about discipleship as a game of two halves. God removing, but also God establishing. Jesus had a power and an authority that in every environment he stood in, bodies were healed, blind eyes were opened, and people were restored to relationship with God. So, the work of discipleship or the goal of discipleship is not just that we would be sin free. The goal of discipleship is that we would be sin free as best as that is possible this side of eternity. But we would be full of the nature, the character and the personality of God. And that's why the Bible teaches us that we will be ever changing. So just when you thought it was safe to settle, have you noticed this with God? Something else comes up in your life. Just when you thought you'd arrived at some place of understanding, God opens up a whole new room to you with great and glorious things for you to discover. Why? Because he knows how to bring forth in your life the kind of life that Jesus has paid for. And I want to say that out loud to us today. What we are aiming for, Jesus has paid for. Jesus has paid the price for forgiveness and freedom but he's also prayed the price for you to have joy and fullness and blessing. Somebody say amen to that. And Paul is clearly demonstrating to us what is throughout the heartbeat of the New Testament in regard to the extension of the kingdom of God. And that is the purpose of God bringing Christ to our world is not just to set us free, but to bring us into victory, to bring us into the fullness that Jesus has indeed modeled for us. So I want you to turn with me, please, if you would, to a particular part of the scriptures where I think there are some levels or progressive understandings of what discipleship can look like for us. Go to 2 Peter and we're going to read from chapter 1 for us. 2 Peter chapter 1. Now since you have become partakers of the divine nature, applying all diligence in your faith, moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, 
and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Now what we have here encapsulated in this little part of the scriptures here is really what it means for us to be on that progressive journey of discipleship. Look at verse 4. It says, now since we are partakers of this divine nature. Can I say this to you and I say it without any fear that you will misunderstand me. Simply this, that true discipleship begins with new birth. The Bible tells us that to become a follower or a disciple of Jesus Christ, we need to be born again. And that's important for us to identify. To truly be immersed in the story of God and to become fully awakened to who God is, we cannot attain that by human effort. Any notion of self-reinvention is pointless. Now let me explain that to you. How many times have you promised yourself that you will change? I mean, if we had a pound for each one of those empty promises, you perhaps would have a better quality life than you have right now. The reason why it's impossible for you to change outside of relationship with God is because you are dead in your transgressions. A dead man cannot erase a dead man to life. You need the quickening spirit of the, the God who brings life into every part of our being whenever we are born again. If you're not born again here this afternoon, then please ask the Lord to cause you to be born again. You need to be born again. Any promise to yourself or you make to anyone else for change or transformation, to be better at something or to be more spiritual without being born again is pointless and it will not cause your life to come into the fullness that God has for you. That's why the writer here says to us that we are partakers of this divine nature. In other words, something supernatural has taken place to us. We have been dead in our sin and our transgressions hopeless and without any possibility of change. But God in his mercy and his grace has caused us to be born again. Is there anyone here this afternoon who's born again? Is there anybody here who'd like to be born again again? Because I think sometimes we have tried that, but it doesn't work. You need to be born again to enter into the adventure of discipleship and following Jesus and living for God. You need God to do something for you. Now, please do not leave here this afternoon without talking to somebody about that. John 3 verse 7 clearly says this. As Jesus was talking to a religious and gloriously educated man called Nicodemus, he says to him, in regard to the kingdom of God, you must be born again. In Ephesians 2 verse 1, this is what it says about us outside of that reality. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions. It goes on further into the text in verse 5 to say, but you have been made alive with Christ. Someone say amen to that. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says this, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, in other words, if you have been born again and you've entered into the reality of Jesus Christ, you are a new creature. Amen. The old things have passed away and behold, new things have come. So to start the adventure of discipleship and the starting point for all true biblical discipleship is to be born again. We need the Spirit of God to come into our lives and to awaken us to the reality of Jesus Christ. And for that to happen, two things need to take place. First of all, you need to recognize that you need God to save you. 
You cannot enter into the discipleship program without understanding that you need salvation. Now, in case you're wondering if I'm talking to the person sitting next to you, let me make it clear to you that all of us need salvation. None of us can do this adventure with God without God saving us. And this is the reason why. Because we are sinners. Now, you don't need to nudge the person sitting next to you because they already know that about themselves. But all of us have fallen short of God's standards. We're living far less glorious lives than he intended for us. And sin has taken its toll on us. In fact, we are more orientated to sin than we are to do something saintly. You don't have to teach a child how to be greedy or to be selfish. It kind of comes out of who they are. That is because our sinful nature causes us to always want to gratify itself, ourselves, by doing things that please us, even if it hurts someone else. You are a sinner. And the good news is that Jesus is your saviour. You may have sinned and fallen short of the standards of God. In fact, I know you have. I have. We all have. But while we were still yet sinners, Christ Jesus came into this world and he died on a cross and his blood was sacrificed for us so that we can be free from the curse of sin and be made alive with God. You need to be born again. And without that, all we've got is self-reinvention. We're just going to try religious things or do some nice things. Have you ever tried to be nice to people? Yeah, looking at me now. Thanks, Sam. Be nice to me. Have you ever tried to be nice to people? How short-lived are those attempts? Because you start off, particularly here in London, with great intentions at the beginning of the day. By 10 o'clock, you're over it. Because no one has been nice to you. It's very hard to continue to be nice to them. We cannot be transformed unless we are transported from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And it's a wonderful thing that God has sent his son to make that possible for us. The Bible says that God has made a way where there appears for us to be no way. That way is Jesus Christ. I'm laboring it because sometimes I'm surrounded by people who talk about discipleship like it's all about self-discipline. How can I bring myself into the fullness of life if I have not experienced the life of God? You need to be born again. Amen. The second thing that we see that's written here in the scripture is that we are called not just to be born again or to partake of this divine nature that's been offered to us, but we are to apply all diligence. Say all diligence for me. In other words, you may be born again, but you're not going to mature if you don't apply yourself. And I've been around Christianity for 35 years. There are lots of people who are converts. They're persuaded that Jesus is right. And they are convinced that when they offered him their life, he forgave them for their sins. In other words, they have a ticket to heaven. But that's all they have. They've never given themselves to the process of transforming. They've never offered God the opportunity to work in them and to work through them. And they attend churches up and down this nation. There may be some of us here today. But the reality is, God did not call you just to sit on a pew. God has not brought you into his kingdom just to forgive you for your sins. There is something far more valuable for you to have, and that is to have the fullness of Jesus living in you. And for that to happen, you need to apply diligence. What does that look like? Well, we need to work with our new nature. You know that when you were born again, you had a new nature. The Lord came by the power of his spirit and he lives in you. 
That new nature is to bring you deeper and deeper and deeper into the reality of who Jesus is. And Paul the Apostle has wonderful things to say to us about us working with our new nature to become all that Christ has indeed destined us to be. He says that we are to put off the old. Have you ever tried to put off the old? See, I've met Christians who try to put off the old. They're trying to distance themselves from their old life. Let me give you an example in my own life. When I first became a Christian, I got rid of all of my music. I was putting off the old. The reason I did that is because somebody in the church thought it would be really good to give me a tape. Do you remember tapes? Anybody old enough to remember tapes? Now, I'm not talking reel to reel. Don't be sarcastic. That's not fair. But they gave me a tape, a cassette tape, and it was all about a thing called backward masking. Have you ever heard of that? That if you played certain popular songs backwards, I mean, who has the time? (laughs) Who has the inclination? They would say certain demonic things. Now, I'm sure that for some reason somebody has had loads of time on their hand and decided to give themselves to that. But actually, in the space of about six months, because I was involved in the music business, three people gave me the same tape. And when I listened to it, it went, (laughs) which apparently when it was translated was Satan is Lord. Okay, I couldn't hear that. But you know, because I was frightened that I was dragging my past into my present, I got rid of everything I had that was musical, every single thing that I had. And I had some really good records. I mean, I had some classic records, you can't buy them now. But the reality was I went out and I burnt them in the garden. See, I was putting off the old. That was costly. That was really costly. But it's not just about putting off the old. Now, you can get rid of your records, and you can get rid of certain things from your past, but actually they can be very much alive in your heart. It's not about those external things alone. It's about the internal reality of consistently submitting and surrendering yourself to the Word of God and the Lordship of Christ. See, I know lots of people who, from the outward perspective, look like they've got rid of those things, but actually those things are still driving their lives, they're still guiding their lives, and they're still impressed by some things that are outside the kingdom of God. So we need to apply diligence. Just say that out loud for me, please. You're just helping me a little bit to stay awake. Is that okay? We need to apply diligence. In other words, we don't automatically get there. Every single day of our lives, as people who are born again, we are exploring the new nature that is ours in Jesus Christ. And some things need to go. But there are so many more things that need to come. Let me start with this. You have lived a certain way with a certain pattern of thinking. How many of us know that to have the abundant life that Jesus offers us, we might need our minds transformed? The Apostle Paul writes that in the book of Romans. says, be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. Anybody here ever been hurt? Give me a wave if that's you. Don't wave too hard. You might hurt somebody else and hit them in the face. But you know, all of us have been hurt Doesn't hurt shape the way you see the world? Aren't you a little cautious in relationships? Don't you find yourself a little bit withholding certain things from certain people because you don't want to make yourself vulnerable? Do you know whenever I see a couple who are playing games like that, I realize both parties are hurt. The problem is they are trying to protect themselves. And in the desire to protect themselves, they are destroying their relationship. It's perfectly human, but it's not necessary in the kingdom of heaven. 
You see, not everybody in this room is out to get you. And just because you feel paranoid doesn't mean nobody's following you. We have to have a balance in the way we look at these things. So we need to apply diligence, unforgiveness, resentment, pain. All of those things are opportunities for us to go back to who we were. So we need to be set free. And we need God's grace and we need God's mercy. But we need to apply ourselves and more importantly, apply the word of God to the situations that we face. Faith without works is dead. And it's important for us to identify that because sometimes we think grace is enough. Grace is not opposed to effort. If you truly understand the blessing of grace, you will live your life diligently every day to abide in the provision of God, but more importantly, to move into all that God has for you. Saying God's grace is sufficient and sitting in a place of inactivity spiritually is going to cause you to dry up. It will not cause you to grow up. Ephesians 4 verses 22 to 24 reminds us that we have this ongoing journey of letting go of some things because that which the Lord wants to give us in our new adventure with him far surpasses anything we've ever experienced. You know, when I first became born again, people would say to me, do you think you'll ever go back to your old way of life? Well, you know, when you're born again truly and you have experienced God, you could never go back to your own life. And certainly if you tried, you would never go back without a conscience. You see, when I was outside of a relationship with God, I did what I did and I thought nothing of it. But when you have the Spirit of God who quickens you and speaks truth to you and causes the Word of God to come alive in you, you can never go back. The only option, therefore, is to go forward. But you should not and cannot just go forward casually. We cannot be casual bystanders in the progress that Jesus wants to bring in our lives. He is at work night and day and you're at work on Sundays. To develop your spirituality. He never sleeps or slumbers. And most of the time as far as your spiritual journey is concerned. We are half awake. We need to be diligent and vigilant. As we work with God and his word. To bring forth the life that he has for us. Paul uses this phrase. I love it. He says I am persuaded. In other words my mind is made up about this. I have examined all the facts. I have thought about all the implications. And for me, this is Paul speaking, the only possible option is to live for Christ. Because Christ is my all in all. Christ is my everything. You see, if you have that kind of clarity, you're going to wake up every day with a sense of direction to your spirituality. It's not going to be accidental change. It's going to be incremental change ever changing from one degree of glory to the next. And then he goes on to say in this scripture, let me read it to you again. Now since you have become partakers of the divine nature, applying all diligence in your faith. Let me talk to you a little bit about faith. Now faith is not your superpower strength. Okay, that isn't what we have faith in. Because that's having faith in our faith. And if we think like that, then some days our faith is stronger than other days. Is that not true? Some days you could change the world for Jesus. And some days you can't even put your socks on for Jesus. That's the truth, isn't it? 
So we can't put faith in our faith. Our faith is simply our response to something far greater. And what do we put faith in? Or more importantly, who can we place our faith in? Well, there is but one who is faithful. That means full of faith. His name is Yahweh, God, Yeshua, King of kings, Lord of lords. We know him as the Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth. Now we are putting faith in him, who he is, what he has done for us, what he says is true. Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in the one who has caused us to have faith. Our faith is in the one who opened our eyes to see that our conviction around Jesus is absolutely right and true. And as we step towards that kind of intentionality with faith, we start to see that our faith begins to function. Here's where I see faith working for me. I believe that he is who he says he is. Now I could keep you here all day talking about what he said about himself. He is the saviour. I believe that. There is no other one who can save you. Hello? He's the healer. Jesus is your healer. Whether you are healed today or not, he's still the healer. Yes? He is the baptizer. He has given us the Holy Spirit. You can't get the Holy Spirit through a seminar. He only comes through Jesus. Okay, now you can go to seminars and the Holy Spirit may turn up, but actually it's Jesus who baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. If you need the Holy Spirit's power today, talk to Jesus. He is our great intercessor. In other words, day and night he is praying and interceding over your life. Shall I just keep you here for a while? Because if we put faith in faith, we are missing the connection between our confidence and our assurance that comes out of the nature and the character and the person of who God is. God is trustworthy to the core of his being. God is holy to the core of his being. God is righteous to the core of his being. God is all powerful, all knowledgeable, all present to the core of his being. Uh, my faith is not in my faith. My faith is in the God of my faith. The God who was and is and is to come. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. The Lamb who was slain. My faith is in the God of my faith. Not in my faith alone. And when I place my faith in Jesus, it's transferable into every facet of my life. It's not confined to a church meeting where the worship is going well. Or even into a season of my life when things are working together for good. In the midst of catastrophe, I still have confidence in the reality of God. My faith is based on the certainty that Jesus is who he says he is. And therefore, if he's right about my salvation and I've benefited from that, then he's got to be right about everything. Jesus is the smartest person in every room you're standing in. He knows everything about everything and we know very little about something. If Jesus is right about salvation, he's right about healing. If he's right about healing, then he's right about eternal life. If he's right about eternal life, then he's right about the powers of darkness. And if he's right about the powers of darkness, he is the glorious light of the world who came into this place to transform everything in his wake. But faith begins with truth. What I believe about God is simply the most important thing. In fact, not what I sing about God or even what I say about God, but what I genuinely believe about God is the most important thing. The writer here goes on to say there are some things to add to that. So what have we got so far? 
faith in the reality of Jesus, applying diligence to pursue this new life that God has offered us as a free gift and that we are partakers, born again of this divine nature, that God is at work in us to produce Christ-likeness in our lives. The second, sorry, the third thing that is in, fourth thing rather, that's invited us to think about here is moral excellence. Now what is moral excellence? Well, let me just highlight something for you. You know, some people in church, they know the truth. They sing the truth. They've got bumper stickers and fridge magnets with the truth on. They've highlighted in yellow iridescent pen every part of the Bible that they think is true. But they walk out of this room and they don't live the truth. Okay, they have a form of godliness. They believe there's some truth, there's truth in this. God is true what you say about that. But actually when their foot hits the ground and they start to live their lives, they are not applying the truth to the way that they live. Now we have to be really careful that we don't fall into that trap. Because we will know the truth, but that truth won't set us free if that's how we live. We need both the revelation of the truth and the application of the truth. Do you know, if it's true about Jesus, then it's going to be true for you. And what God says to you actually works really well in your day-to-day living. So the writer here is inviting us to live just beyond a set of philosophical ideas about the nature and the person of Jesus. And he's talking about moral excellence. In other words, my truth turns up in my decisions. My truth turns up in my relationships. My truth turns up in my workplace. My truth turns up in my community. My truth turns up in the way I interact with the world around me. We need moral excellence. And it's produced, I believe, through a clarity and a certainty about who Jesus is. And that comes to us as we understand we have to work with what God has indeed offered us, which is a new life through Christ Jesus. And then we are asked by the writer to increase in our discipleship journey in knowledge. Now, can I just speak into this for a minute? Because knowledge is not education. When the Bible speaks of knowledge, it's talking about our knowledge of the nature, the character, the person and the truth of God. Now, some of the most educated people I've ever met actually neither know God or care about him. They may even be able to recite the Bible. I remember one time when we were first in ministry, we had a little flat, well I say a little flat, it, that's probably, it was more like a cupboard really with a bed in it, attached to the, the church building. And the church where we were uh, youth pastors, Jane and I, I know it's hard to believe I was ever a youth pastor, but it did happen. Okay, we used to have all kinds of people that were, you know, broken. There was a lot of people on drugs and various things in the area. It was a very poor part of that particular town in Birkenhead. And one Saturday, we were out in what was known to us as a garden. It was really four slabs with a table in the middle of it. Okay, and we were sitting there and I can hear this guy shouting various things. And of course, I realized that he was over the other side of the wall on the front doorstep of the church. And uh, I said to Jane, I'm just going to go and see if he's okay. You know, he sounded in distress, so... I had to come through all these different corridors in the building to get out there. And when I got there, there he was lying in the doorway of the church. And he was saying all manner of things, you know. And so being naive in ministry and trying to be a pastor, don't ever try to be a pastor. It comes out of who you are with God. I was trying to be a pastor. I was trying to be sympathetic. I think I was just more pathetic than sympathetic, to be honest. And I started just reciting some Bible verses. 
you know, for God so loved the world. You know, you've done it. I'm sure you've done it. Anybody done this? You know, take two scriptures a day and everything's going to be okay with you. You know, you've written out the prescription before you even know what the diagnosis is. Anybody ever done that with people? Come on, tell the truth. You're in church. God knows. He sees. Oh, conviction has just come to four of you. That's amen. Hallelujah. But we're very quick to speak sometimes, aren't we? And we're very presumptive in what we think the antidote to the problem is. Amen? Is that not fair to say? Well, I was just so naive and I was just rattling off these scriptures and, you know, I was really pleased with myself that I got them all in. I think I gave him about 10 and stood back. Do you know what the guy said to me? He looked up in his very broken, desperate life and he said, you know, even the devil quotes scripture, Simon. I say, okay, on your back, mate, that's it. (laughs) There's a difference between having education, having an understanding of where things are in the Bible and having the knowledge of the nature and the character of God. We must never trade education. Education is good, but it's the gateway to revelation. God wants to show us who he is. The psalmist David said this. He didn't say just teach me your word. He said, teach me your ways, O God, that I may walk in them all the days of my life. And so we want consistently to be growing in our understanding of who God is. And I want to guarantee something to you. If you grow in your understanding of who God is, you will certainly be able to affect other people because you will be speaking out of a knowledge, not just out of head knowledge. You will be speaking out of a life that has been transformed by that knowledge. So we are to grow in knowledge. We're to grow in self-control. Now notice the terminology self-control. That tells me that the only person you're meant to control is you. Hallelujah. Think of all the hours you've wasted. (laughs) Think of all the time you've given over trying to control somebody else's decisions. You cannot control anybody else. Do you know why I know that? Because you can't even control yourself. And that whole notion of trying to control the world around you, where does that come from? I tell you where it comes from. Shame and it comes from fear. That if people truly knew who you were and you let your mask down, then they might not like you. Shame. Now, shame isn't that you've done something wrong. Shame is that there's something wrong with you. For years, I would hear people say to me, oh, the Lord knitted you together in your mother's womb. But I was so full of shame. My response on the inside was, I think he dropped a stitch with me. That somehow there was just something flawed about me. So that's shame. And shame will cause you to cover up because you're frightened that some people are going to see you for who you truly are. In the book of Genesis chapter 3, verse 10 God comes to Adam after this breakdown in relationship and he says to Adam, where are you? It's not a geographical question. God knows everything. And this is Adam's response. I heard you coming in the garden. I was naked, shame, and afraid, so I hid myself, control. You cannot control the world around you. You have wasted so much time trying to do that. The world is not a safe place for you. But God is a safe person for you to be with. Okay, people may not like you. Hallelujah, welcome to the real world. You may not be everybody's favorite person on Facebook. Just be honest with yourself. 99.9% of those people you've never met and you don't care about. 
Why would you let their opinion of you shape your life or ruin your day? Come on, speak truth over that, somebody, please. We live our lives always waiting for somebody outside of us to affirm who we are. Look into the eyes of God and he will affirm who you are. His report says you are his. His report says you are free. His report says you are healed. Stop giving power away to people and situations. And get over yourself. You can't control the world. But you can control yourself. And what that means is not a restrictive approach to life, but simply living your life diligently according to the truth that God has assigned to you. Another word that's mentioned here is perseverance. I love perseverance because we have no option but to persevere. How many of you persevere quietly? (laughs) See, not many of us have got the gift, have we? How many of us persevere grumbly? We kind of get on with it, but we get on with it with a complaint. Can I just say something to you? Have it, wait yourself. The more you grumble, the longer you stay in. The children of Israel grumbled against God. I don't wish to be the bearer of bad news. 40 years. <laughs> what comes out of your mouth lands in your life. You need to zip it, shorty. To zip it. Jesus persevered for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He never complained, he never winced, he never whined. And perseverance produces godliness. What is godliness? That is where the nature of God starts to show up in our lives. Now, I would love for you to go back over this scripture and just look at this progress that comes in the thinking of the writer. It starts with being born again. New life is the essential ingredient to start the life that God has for you as a disciple. You need to apply diligence. Amen? This is not some casual meandering through life. Every day counts. And you know, I would just like to say to you regarding that, If you made the same goals to your spiritual journey as you do to your corporate journey, you might find in a year's time you're a little bit further on than you were last year. We have all kinds of ambitions in the natural, but we don't always allow them to infiltrate the spiritual. Faith in who God is, not faith in your faith, but faith in his nature, his character, his promise, and his truth. Moral excellence, applying the truth to our lives, living each day and making every decision according to how God has told us to. Knowledge, an understanding of the nature, the character, and the person of God. Self-control, there's a good day off from controlling the world around me. God, I can't do that. Whether I want it to rain or not, it's going to rain. So I'm not going to grumble, Father, and I certainly want to grow in perseverance. And I want godliness to turn up in my life to such a point that the nature and the character of Christ has been formed in me. But it's not over. Because the writer here says, there's a place beyond all of those internal realities. And this is where I want to land this. That we start to have brotherly kindness. In other words, if I'm a true disciple of Jesus Christ, and I'm walking through this transforming process, actually my relationships with people start to have a greater sense of capacity Out of the overflow of what I've experienced, I'm able to give to another. 
And as I give to another, they get caught up in the love of God. And as they're caught up in the love of God, this process begins to them. And finally, the writer here says, love, which is the evidence of God at work and at work in and through another person.